American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Throw it all away. Okay. We're officially recording episode 201 of American Timelines by History for Jerks. All right. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy, and that is Joe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we're not only jerks, we're assholes. That's right. And we are... I'm a bitch. That's right. And we are going <laughs> to talk about 1958. Yes, we are too. Today. We are. Yep. We are going to talk about that. I think, so yeah, 1958, we're going to, we just, if you recall last episode, those of you who listened, we got into April. We got April right at the beginning. Little beginning of April, yeah. But we're going to finish up April and jump into May, and then Amy's got probably something awful that I don't want to know about. Actually, it's it's kind of fun. Oh, it's a fun one? A little bit. It's kind of fun, yeah. It's kind of a fun Well, one. are there boners involved? Probably. Okay. Before we get started, let me tell you, listeners, beautiful, attractive, sexy listeners, uh, about a little way you can uh, get uh, 56% off of your subscription for the next 10 days to Magic Mind. Go to www.magicmind.co slash American and use my code American20 because you will find yourself happier and doing better and focusing more makes me feel good uh pete holmes was talking about it on his podcast haha and i'm talking about it on my podcast yeah they're just like us celebrities anyway magic mind is a delicious little shot you just do it real quick in the morning it, the new uh recipe tastes delicious uh i mean you don't have to do it in the morning but you can uh, because it helps you cut out caffeine if you drink too much caffeine, you don't need as much when you drink Magic Mind. So that's my link, and that's my code. It's got stuff like uh, Lion's Mane Mushrooms, Cordyceps Mushrooms, uh, Matcha. I don't know if it's matcha or matcha, but the compounds of matcha work together to prevent the spike in cortisol levels and the inevitable crash that comes from ingesting too much caffeine. So try it out. Check out my code. Again, it's www.magicmind.co slash American. And the code is American20 to get 56% off a subscription. And you need it. You got to do it. Well, let's just go ahead and start, shall we? All right. With April 2nd, 1958, shall we do that? Yes. Uh, the date when Delaware became the first U.S. state in almost 47 years and the seventh state overall to abolish what? What do you think? Um, it became the first state in almost 47 years. To abolish something. Governor J. Caleb Bogg signed a bill that passed the state I have no House idea. of Representatives. What, what Capital is it? punishment. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It always goes in and out of vogue, doesn't it? I guess it does. Seems to. Uh, Delaware's last execution, a hanging, had taken place on December 7th, 1945. 
Do you hear that senator recently said he wanted to have hanging by tree come back? Hanging by tree? That's lynching. Yeah. It's crazy what Ugh. they're saying right now. Yeah. Like, it's almost no. unreal. It's almost like it's not real. Like right. Reality is not even real anymore, what people are saying and doing. It's weird. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that last hanging was Anderson D. Butler, who was executed for raping a child. Yikes. Sorry about that. Can you turn that off? Um. No new U.S. states had acted since North Dakota had repealed the death penalty in 1911. So I feel like that last sentence makes me kind of be like, eh, <laughs> eh maybe capital punishment's not, you know. Right. Sometimes it's okay, right? I it's mean, hard. Nobody wants when, a child rapist. Around. Right. When when you have somebody like that beyond a shadow of a doubt is guilty of that's something that yeah. is that heinous and of that's course a, that's a anus. but the prop but the problem is so many innocent people get put to death and even one innocent person gets put to death it's not worth it it's not worth all the other ones who deserved it right you just let, yeah. let them rot in jail who gives a fuck yeah that's put true. them in a cell well it costs money right that's rot. why that's why the character it costs cost more money to execute because of all the appeals it costs way more to execute so we save money by just letting them rot in a cell. Really? Yes. Yeah, but you got to feed them every day. It's three squares. Yeah. A day. So. You know, lights, electricity. If we could, listen. You know, if we would get environmental if we would get all the, peop- the, the nonviolent flushing. drug offenders out of jail, we'd have plenty of room for those motherfuckers. That's true. And plenty of money. Yeah, we should get all the nonviolent offenders, all the drug. Related ones, because like drug abuse is a disease, not a right. It'd be a criminal thing, right? Exactly. Oh well, April sixth, nineteen fifty eight was a Sunday. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, on that day, Capital Airlines Flight sixty seven crashed in a snowstorm on its approach to the Tri City Airport in Freeland, Michigan, Ooh. killing all forty seven people on board. The turboprop Vickers Viscount had departed from Flint. As part of a multi-stop fight, flight between New York and Chicago, mm-hmm. and had an undetected buildup of ice on his horizontal stabilizer. You don't want your horizontal stabilizer to be. Oh, in I ice, hate man. when my horizontal stabilizer is covered in. You ice. know what? I've I've always noticed you have a nice horizontal stabilizer on you. Anyway, the crew attempted a steep turn on landing, and the airplane stalled and went into a spin. Yikes! Stacy Henson. Got to be bad enough to crash, but it, it would be double bad to be spinning the whole time. Yeah, or on your way to your on the way to death. your death, you're spinning. I would yeah. do, I would just bleh. awful. Stacy Henson in the Saginaw News tells the story of Carl Burke, who was 12 at that time, and he was in bed at the family farm, 500 yards from the crash. He said, "My dad heard the explosion when the plane hit and got up to look out the window." He called a neighbor and told him, but the neighbor said it's probably just a haystack burning. Uh, he said just about everybody who worked. Oh, Carl said everybody who worked, so everybody rushed to the crash mm-hmm. site, and everybody who worked at it was throwing up. Burke said. He said I think it was six a.m. when they got the last people's bodies out. In the morning, oh. Carl Burke got up to do his farm chores and later went to the scene to examine the wreckage. It was quite shocking, he said. There were footprints on every part of the ground. I even seen a high-heeled shoe that some woman lost. It didn't belong to a victim because it was in good shape. The only thing that was left was the engines buried in the mud and the tail in the back of the airplane 
was a whole bunch of white shirts and packages, and they weren't burnt, hmm. he said. Never learned who they belonged to. Uh, yeah, recovery crews brought in cranes to haul out engines and parts. About a month later, when the field lay barren, Carl Burke took a casual walk across the site. He said, I was just looking around, just to look for any pieces or parts of metal. And I found somebody's upper jaw in the dirt, he said. Oh, God. I took it to the airport, and they said they would get it to the proper authorities. Yikes. Isn't that that gruesome? Yeah. Yeah, that's awful. And that's the same day that Arnold Palmer, you know the golfer? Yeah. Who's got the drink named after him? I was in the same room as him once. You you were? Yeah. Oh, my God. A little touch of celebrity. Right. Why were you in the same room as Arnold Palmer? Do tell. Do tell. Because I worked a summer PGA tournament in St. Louis. I was in part of the catering staff. You worked a PGA tournament in St. Louis? Yeah. Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas and all these other people were there. We've been together over... I've never mentioned 25 it. 25 years, and you've never once said that. Yeah. Who else it was, was there? It was my cousin Katie's stepdad's club that okay. hosted the PGA tournament. You know what? I'm going to go on the record and just, I'm just going to say this. And it was swanky. Katie like, is good people. They had these big Wait, you buffets. worked there? You worked, that yeah. you had a job there? If just for the summer. Did Katie work with you? Just for the you? tournament. Yeah. Oh, just for that tournament? And it was swanky. My God, they had like these spreads that you'd never believe. Like margarine spreads? No, like chocolate fountains. And Ooh, I love chocolate fountains. What about cheese fountains? Were there any cheese fountains? Probably. There was all kinds of crazy shit. I love chocolate fountains. Anyway, on that day, Arnold Palmer of Latrobe, Pennsylvania, who was a former paint salesman, mm-hmm. hung on to win his first major professional golf championship with a one-stroke victory in the 1958 Masters Tournament. And if you had... You know, if we had been doing this podcast mm-hmm. back then, you could tell him that you knew that about him. Yeah. Well, I didn't talk to him or anything. I just. Well, Arnold, I know you've always wondered how Arnold Palmer right. learned golf, but he learned golf from his father, who had suffered from polio at a young age and was head professional and greenskeeper at Latrobe Country Club, uh, which allowed young Palmer to accompany his father as he maintained the course. That's according to Wayne Stewart in his book. The gigantic book of golf quotations, which I'm going to get you for your oh, birthday. Oh, thank God. I've been waiting for that. <laughs> I'm trying to get Wayne Stewart to be a regular on the podcast. Can you get it autographed for me? Yeah. The gigantic book of golf quotations. That's yes. If you know Amy, that's her thing. That's my thing. And speaking of St. Louis, on April 12th, 1958, which was a Saturday, the St. Louis Hawks defeated the visiting Boston Celtics by a single point. To okay. win Game Six of the 1958 NBA Finals, and the championship of the NBA went to St. Louis, the St. Louis Hawks, in the NBA. You ever heard of them? No. Did you know that St. Louis had an NBA NBA team? Um, I knew they used to have one, but I think it was called something different. No, it was the Hawks. I just told you. No, I know, but I mean, since then, I think they had another one. Really? Well, maybe they did. That was called something different. But I, wish I, I might be wrong. I don't well, know. Well, I was, because I, I, the Atlanta Hawks are the Hawks that I know, and I didn't know that they were oh. ever in St. Louis. And I don't think a lot of people knew that, because they started out in Buffalo as the Buffalo Bisons in 1946, mm-hmm. and after 38 day, days, they moved to Moline, Illinois, where they were renamed the Tri-Cities Blackhawks, and that's how they got the Blackhawks, the Hawks name. 
1949, they joined the NBA as part of the merger between the NBL and the BAA. And then uh, they moved to Milwaukee, or they changed the name to the Milwaukee Hawks. I didn't know they were the Milwaukee Hawks ever. This is crazy. I didn't know this. And then in 1955, they moved to St. Louis, where they won that championship. uh, And they were in the finals in 57, 60, and 61. Uh, And then I think from there, they moved to Atlanta in 1968. And they've been there ever since. So how about that? How about that? And we also have our first birthday that same day. So hit the music. Wonderful Matt Truman and the great Matt Truman Ego Trip. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. All right, uh, the birthday on this date, April, what was it, 12th, 1958? Mm-hmm. Let's see if you can guess. It's a very famous Bulgarian athlete who held the world oh, record on. for the women's 100-meter hurdles. Uh- and won the 1987 World Championship in Plovdiv. No, I'm not going to know that answer to that one. Well, it's Ginka Zagorcheva. <laughs> and that was a flawless pronunciation, I'm sure. Ginka Zagorcheva! Ginka! Oh my God, Ginka Zagorcheva! There's a giant bug in here. Looks like a mosquito, but it's one of those really you know, big ones. That brother's been flying around this garage for three days. And I'm letting him live. I'm just going to see how long he lives. I'm doing a test. Does he bite or anything? I don't know. I'm not sure it's a he. It might be a she. How do you know sex of insects? You have to ask Henry insect sex. if yeah. he knows. We have to ask our son. Know. He wants to be an entomology guy. Anyway, April 13th, 1958, the Tony Awards. Uh, Hello? Did you have a stroke? The Tony Awards. Oh. Uh, were presented at the Waldorf Astoria. Sunrise at Campobello was named the best play, and The Music Man was the best musical that year. Okay. Have you ever heard of Sunrise at Campobello? No. Campobello? I haven't either. I left, the only reason I left them there is I wanted to see if you knew what that was. April 15, 1958 was a Tuesday, and the San Francisco Giants beat the Los Angeles Dodgers in the first Major League Baseball regular season game ever played in California. All right. Because they just moved there. Remember I told you about the Giants and the Dodgers moving from New York and Brooklyn? Yes. Now they're playing out in California. What do you know? And on the same day, April 15th, it was tax day. I don't know if it was tax day then, but one man was killed and 31 people were injured in a fire on the third floor of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Oh, boy. When a worker let a cigarette fall on an oil-soaked drop cloth. Jesus. Yeah, see, they were remodeling. Just put that anywhere, pal. They were installing an air conditioning in the museum, mm-hmm. and most of the paintings by artists had been moved, but six works of art were damaged. One of Claude Monet's water lilies paintings was destroyed. Oh, my God. Allison McNeary of the Daily Beast recalls uh, that shortly after noon on April 15th, electricians working on the second floor of the museum decided to indulge in the day's favorite lunchtime custom, a smoke. Yeah. Drop cloths cover the floor, open paint cans sat nearby, and it's believed a pile or two of sawdust were left where they had fallen. As to what happened next, the New York Times reported that authorities believed a spark from one of the workers' cigarettes fluttered away and landed on the sawdust, which went up in flames, igniting the drop cloths, followed by the highly flammable cans of paint. Yikes. That one little spark caused a deadly chain reaction, 
and set in motion what would result in a destructive three-alarm fire that raged through MoMA. Three-alarm. Yeah, three-alarm. That's a lot of alarms. Mm-hmm. Um, and they end up, a bunch of people went back in, like, <laughs> to get all the other art, yeah. and they ended up doing, like, a fire line, like like a fireman's yes. thing. Where they get that's all, why they got so that they name saved, from. Yeah, that's where it, from, probably from this. Probably from firemen. I'm, I'm amazed there wasn't, I mean, I guess there were tons and tons of fires back in the day, because everybody yeah, Everything was smoked. made of wood. And everybody and smoked. A, a lot of people didn't have electricity, so they used uh, candles for lighting and, and, and kerosene lamps. And everybody smoked. So. If you had to guess, how many fires have there been? What? How many fires would you guess there have been ever in the I world? I think that's. I don't think that's an answerable question, honey. <laughs> the answer is more than seven. That's true. Anyway, I'm going to move on. How about yes, that? please. I got a whole bunch more on that museum thing. I have like three pages of information about the insurance God. that the museum <laughs> uh, received. Uh, and I just realized now that it was boring. Yeah. I got the good part, though, right? The yes. The fire. The fire. You know, and the, and the painting burning. Mm-hmm. And then Friday, April 18th, 1958, the first regular season Major League Baseball game in Los Angeles, California, was played okay. between the Dodgers and the Giants. So the first time they played in San Francisco. Uh, also on that same day, according to Time Magazine, mm-hmm. on his way home at quitting time, Finnish-born William Heikela, 52-year-old man, found two men waiting for him outside the offices of the San Francisco engineering firm where he worked as a draftsman. One flashed a badge, mm-hmm. and then he said, Call my wife to a fellow co-worker. Tell her immigration has picked me up. For 10 frustrating years, District Director Bruce Barber, U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Services chief in San Francisco, had been waiting for a chance to deport him uh, because he was sometimes a communist. And they were going to deport him back to Finland, where he was born. Under the law, he seemed to be clearly deportable. His Finnish parents had brought him to the U.S. when he was three months old. But he had never become a U.S. citizen. And by his own admission, he was an active Communist Party member. Uh, from 1929 to 1939. Uh, He fought off deportation with a 10-year series of habeas corpus writs, court-restraining orders, and appeals, including one appeal to the Supreme Court. But in handling Heikla's latest delaying action in San Francisco's Federal District Court, his lawyer neglected to get a restraining order to curb immigration's barber. That oversight caught Barber's watchful eye, and he sent immigration service agents to grab him. And haul him away. I just can't believe that he came when he was three months old. So he's gonna go back to Finland where he's never right been. It's like a dream. He's like a, one of the dreamers. Like a dreamer, yeah, doctor yeah. dreamer. Uh, but he did admit it was all his own fault and his lawyer's fault, kind of, for not doing the right paperwork. But and because he was a communist, like mm-hmm. that, that was part it of didn't it. help, right? Uh, but they ended up getting him back pretty quick, and then, uh, and then it was a long. The rest of his life was just a court battle to try to stay in the. Like uh, until he died. Okay. So, yeah. How about that? How about it? How about that story? April twentieth, nineteen fifty-eight. Fo twenty. All right. You know, fo twenty is yes. The Mo- Every day, baby. <laughs> the Montreal Canadiens won their third consecutive Stanley Cup. I don't care. Defeating the Boston Bruins. Four twenty is a state of mind. 
It is. Four twenty is a lifestyle. Yes. You live it every day. Every day. Four twenty one, nineteen fifty eight was a Monday. Mm-hmm. All forty seven persons aboard United Airlines flight seven thirty six were killed, Ouch. along with a two man crew of a U.S. Air Force F one hundred jet fighter when the two planes collided at an altitude of 21,000 feet shortly after passing over Las Vegas. Man. You know, uh, that there was a lot of these collisions. Like, I know. Air traffic is needed bad at this time. Air traffic control. And we have another birthday in Gaffney, South Carolina. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. What actress, one of your favorite all-time actresses, American film actor? Born. Yep. Her name is Rosalie Anderson McDowell. But you know her as... Andy McDowell? Andy McDowell, your favorite actress in Gaffney, South Carolina. That's not my favorite actress. It is, but it's not far from here. And she, yeah, so she was born in Gaffney Mm. to Pauline... Pauline Johnston, a music teacher, and Marion St. Pierre McDowell, a lumber executive. She had three over older sisters. Her mother was an alcoholic, and her parents divorced when she was six, and her mother died of a heart attack in 1981 at the age of 51 after living sober for a year. Uh, she graduated from Gaffney High School in 1976, home of the Indians. Team colors black and gold. Noble alumni include Sidney Rice, who played for the Vikings, and... Jenny Kabul from the Nerdy Night Out series, uh, my former co-worker, Jenny Kabul, yep. who does Nerdy Night shows. And she was a guest, I think. Wasn't she on American Timelines? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you met her. There you go. She went to the same high school as Andy McDowell. Boom. You like that? All right. And she was a model originally. Somebody saw her and thought she was beautiful and gave her an acting gig. Lucky. And then April 23rd, 1958, was the... 1958 Fort Campbell parachute tragedy. You know what that consisted of? What? A U.S. Army mass jump of 1,300 paratroopers of the 101st Airborne Division mm-hmm. saw five soldiers killed and 137 injured. When After they jumped, the high winds began partway through the operation of Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and the winds blew everybody, and their parachutes got all tangled up, and everybody... Uh, was a big mess. People getting injured. Shouldn't be jumping. No high wind. Yeah, that's out of a plane. Bad idea. And they said they knew they shouldn't have, but they did anyway because they've been like training for this for so long. They just want to get over with, I guess. That's some conjecture. Now, April twenty seventh, nineteen fifty eight. This is going to kind of feed the rest of this episode. It's going to be an ongoing saga. April twenty seventh, U.S. Vice President Richard. Nixon and his wife, Pat, made sweet, sweet love. They began an ill-fated 18-day goodwill tour of South America, stopping over first to Port of Spain and Trinidad before embarking the next day to Uruguay. And so we'll get to what happens. Okay. Okay. All righty. Keep that in my hat. Make a note. And then Tuesday, April 29th, 1958, did you know that Alan B. Dupont, Dumont, Founder of the Dumont Television Network. Remember, there was it was like CBS, NBC, and Dumont was another mm-hmm. one. Um, he was the inventor of the cathode ray tube, 
used in the first practical televisions, okay? So he knows his stuff about TVs. He received a patent on this date for another TV invention that would never be put into use. Oh. That it was called the Dumont Duoscopic, Duoscopic maybe, set, TV set, which would allow two programs to be telecast simultaneously to the same set. Oh, that's pretty nifty. With polarizer panels to allow different viewers to choose which of the two programs to watch and earpieces to hear separate shows. That's pretty nifty. So everybody be sitting in a room, kind of like watching everybody does now, show. watching their own shit on their on their phone. Like he yeah. was desperate for everybody to be like it is now, where everybody just staring at their own phone yeah. with their headphones in and nobody talking to each other. Correct. But it never happened. Never happened. Uh, and I'm going to skip Michelle Pfeiffer's birthday, which is that same day. I'm going to just skip Thank that. God. And we're not going to go into the fact that her parents were originally from North Dakota, and that she went to Fountain Valley High School and graduated in 1976, notable alumni including Stop it. Denman, who played Roy from The Office. We're not going to get into any of that. Even though the team colors were blue, gold, and red, home of the Barons, we're not going to talk about Michelle Pfeiffer no. and her birthday. Good. Not even going to put the theme music in there. Stop it. This theme music. Stop. <laughs> okay. April 30th, 1958 was a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And that's how it's pronounced. The U.S. Navy conducted an experiment to determine how high a basketball would bounce if dropped from the top of the Empire State Building. Oh my of course, God. they couldn't do they couldn't drop it off the Empire State Building because of the danger to everyone below. Yes. Uh, so a U.S. Navy blimp <laughs> hovered over its Lakehurst, New Jersey base at one thousand four hundred seventy two feet the altitude of the building's television tower, and drop 12 basketballs as closely as possible to a target on a runway. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, test showed, the test showed that a basketball dropped from the Empire State Building would bounce back up no higher. Do you want to guess how many feet? Oh. Um, I so would the, the, say it it's, bounces it's, like... 1,472 feet, they're dropping it. How high does it bounce back up? Like 10 feet. That's it? You think just 10? I don't know. 22. 22 feet, 9 inches. Okay. Now you know. Yeah. Well, that's more than I thought. It's still not that high, though. Like For that high, that far up? That's interesting. I've always wanted to know that. Maybe a Super Bowl would be different. Super Bowl would be way different. And our dogs would chase it. They'd jump out of a window to catch one. Jeez. May 1, 1958 was a Thursday. We're into May now, babe. All righty. U.S. space scientist James Van Allen announced the discovery of Earth's magnetosphere. Oh. He didn't know it existed until then. Sweet. Everybody was just walking around not knowing about magnetospheres. The initial reaction was that it's now called... The Van Allen radiation belt located 600 miles above the Earth and with radiation a thousand times more powerful than expected was that it raises a new obstacle to manned spaceflight. Mm. So spacecraft would now need to be redesigned to protect against all that radiation. Yeah. The radiation is so intense, a reporter wrote, that a space traveler could use his weekly tolerance dose of radiation in one and a half hours. Everybody's got a dose of radiation tolerance. Yeah. By by week. <laughs> Did you know that? What? Never mind. May 3rd, 1958 was a Saturday. We got the Kentucky Derby in the 1958 Kentucky Derby. Do you want to guess who won? I'm what not, horse won? No. The Triple Crown. <laughs> Secretary. American Thoroughbred Horse Racing. Tim Tam. It was Tim Tam. Okay. 
I only know one horse. Well, you don't know. No, now you know two. You know Tim. Two, but two horse. I know Sea Biscuit. Oh, Sea Biscuit. Is that isn't that fictional? No. What about Mister Ed? Is a real. Mister Ed was a fictional. Black Beauty. Fictional. Mister Ed. Silver. Fictional. What was Tonto's horse's name? Copper. I don't know. Really? No. According to the New England Historical Society, on May third, nineteen fifty-eight, that same day. Excuse me. Rioting broke out at a rock concert at the Boston Garden, where New York disc jockey Alan Freed was hosting a live broadcast of his rock and roll party show. And at least 15 people in attendance were robbed or assaulted. A grand jury in Boston indicted Freed a few days later for inciting the unlawful destruction of property. So here's what actually happened. Uh, there was 20 police on hand for 5,000 rock and roll fans who jammed into the arena. The first half of the show went smoothly, but during the second half, police interrupted the show several times, forcing Freed to quiet the audience. Mm. Like, they stopped the show. Police stopped the, because the audience was too loud and having fun. Jerry Lee Lewis and his band uh, had the kids dancing in the aisles, but the police, again, forced Freed to stop the show and make the audience sit down Jeez. at a concert. They're up and dancing. Oh, my God. Then Chuck Berry came onto stage to close the show out. Yeah. Again, kids are dancing in the aisles. It's Chuck fucking Berry, baby. Right. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. Stop looking at my wiener. That's right. God damn it. You know what? But he's, he makes you dance. He do. Uh, and the kids, again, were dancing in the aisles, and the police forced Freed to make them sit down. One of the police officers refused to dim the house lights. Freed, frustrated, told the audience, it looks like the police in Boston don't want you kids to have any fun. Mm. At that point, fighting broke out, and kids started throwing chairs at each other. Jesus. And Freed got blamed for inciting the yeah. melee with his remarks, but the fight may have been a result of a gang ra- rivalry. We're still not sure. Well, he didn't make it any better. He didn't. But Chuck Berry hid behind the drummer to get as far away from the scuffle as possible, and then the crowd poured out into the streets, and there were arrests, and there were stabbings reported, and sluggings, Jeez, and robberies, and rapes. Uh, but... Chuck Berry's manager said he walked out after the show ended and didn't see anything, really. So it's all conjecture. And then they tried to ban, and Boston banned rock and roll and all that kind of stuff happens in the 50s. So um, you're getting your elbow cleaned. I'm getting my legs cleaned and my elbows cleaned. Our dog is cleaning your elbows. and Good girl, Wheezy. Good dog. At least she's not chewing on a ball. May 6, 1958, was a Tuesday, and millions of people in the U.S., including U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower, went to the fallout shelter nearest to them in a nationwide civil defense drill, Operation Alert 1958. We should ask older people if they remember this. The exercise was held in 46 of the 48 U.S. states, with Michigan and Indiana excused from participation because of pre-scheduled statewide events. Oh. At 1030... Eastern Time, sirens signaled that persons outside should look for the nearest shelter as an exercise for the time that a nuclear bomb might be dropped on the area. And the drill ended after 10 minutes. Nationwide Man. bunker drill. We're going to get back to those days, I guarantee it. Oh, yeah. Where are we going to go, though? We're going to have to build a bunker, huh? Yeah, I guess. In the backyard. Hey, our podcast studio could be a bunker. Where? I mean, we could build a podcast studio in a oh. bunker. Yeah, maybe. That brings us to May 8th, 1958, 
when, I don't know if you know this, but U.S. Vice President Richard Nixon was threatened by a hostile crowd of 2,000 leftist rioters while he was li- visiting Lima. Lima, Le- sorry. Yeah. I'm used to Lima, Ohio. I know. Uh, you know, Ohio's filled with Toledo instead of Toledo, Lima yeah. instead of Lima. Right. There's one more. There's another one like that. Or- They're all like that. Or- it's not just to, uh, Ohio. It's all around the country. that They just they take have- word yeah. and say I'm wrong. Okay. Anyway, he was threatened by a hostile crowd of 2,000 leftist rioters uh, in Peru as part of an official tour of South America. Nixon got out of his automobile to confront demonstrators who had massed outside of the University of San Marcos and was spat upon, grazed on the neck by a stone, shoved, and booed. Oh, my. A reporter at the scene wrote, pale with anger, but keeping a tight smile on his lips, Mr. Nixon stood his ground for four minutes, though engulfed by screaming demonstrators. Wow! He challenged them face. Uh, to, he challenged them to face him in a debate. All the demonstrators. Oh my god! Yeah. So that's yeah. this was this trip where he almost got killed and all this stuff. And that brings us to May eighth. That's May eighth, nineteen fifty eight, which is a Thursday. And you have something. Yes. That happened simultaneously. Yes. Simultaneously, as the kids say. Yes. We'll, and we'll get there. But uh, I am going to talk about the shoe bandit. The Shoe Bandit. Okay. This so is interesting. In 1958, a shoe bandit had San Diego and Coronado on edge. Oh, okay. And he would accost women as they walked home at night from the bus or the ferry, knocking them to the ground and stealing just one shoe, usually the left. Really? He would just take left shoes? He sneaked into homes and took leather pumps, stilettos, sandals, hundreds of shoes, discarding many of them later in the crawl spaces below other houses. Sneaked or snuck? Sneaked. Are those both acceptable? I, think I don't they are. think snuck is a word. Snuck? Maybe. I snuck? I don't know. All right, Maybe most not. of the victims were not seriously injured, but several were hospitalized with fractured skulls or broken bones. One was hit with a bowling pin. Another oh. was the butt of a screwdriver. Okay. Um... And the men were, and women uh, were scared. The, the whole community was scared. Everybody was scared about the shoe bandit. The, there was a teen at the time named Bill Geis. Bill um, Geis? How do you spell Geis? G-I-S-E. Okay. He was a teen at the time when the shoe bandit came into his house at 1 a.m. one night. Ooh. His mother woke up and screamed, startling the intruder who dropped the shoes he was stealing and fled. He dropped them like the whole point he came in there was for yeah, the shoes. He got nervous, I guess. He got nervous. Geis was quoted as saying, this was a place where there was hardly ever any crime. Nobody locked their doors. That's how he was able to get in so many places. What city was this in? Coronado. Coronado what? California, I think. California. Stories about him ran in the local newspapers. Small items at first, tucked in on the inside pages, and then on the front pages as the number of incidents and the community's alarm it increased. It started growing. It started growing. Teasers to the evening TV broadcast asked, what makes the shoe bandit tick? So unnerved was the populace that some residents bought dogs and guns for protection, sometimes with tragic results. In one Ocean Beach home, a four-year-old boy found a loaded thirty-eight caliber handgun in a box by a bed, newly purchased, the owner told police, because of the bandit, and accidentally shot himself in the chest. You know, I think about this, gun sales and dog sales are increasing Mm -hmm. because of a shoe bandit. Right. So wouldn't it be smart for those industries to, well, guns already do that. They already, like, manufacture fear to get people to buy them. I guess they already do that. Right. No, never mind. Yeah. All right. So maybe this is a a shoe band that's fake just to increase sales. Maybe. 
So the police were criticized because they couldn't catch this guy. Yeah, stupid uh, police. They would send undercover officers onto buses and the Coronado Ferry, which because the bridge wasn't not built yet at the time. Who's the Coronado Ferry? What's his name? No, F-E-R-R-Y. <laughs> I'm just kidding. On at least two occasions, vigilantes beat up an officer they mistook for the bandit. Okay. So what makes the story remarkable over six decades later, beyond all the colorful details and the way it's vividly recalled by those who were there, is what it says about its time and place. In a modern world where terrorism means bombs and guns being used to kill people by the dozens, the idea of a shoe bandit terrorizing a community seems kind of quaint. Yeah. Um, so this whole spree started in September of 1956 in Coronado, and then two months later in San Diego. Okay. The first story in the San Diego Union to identify it as a series by a shoe bandit published in February 1957 started this way, quote, An eccentric young thug who attacks women to steal their shoes found a fifth victim when a 24-year-old aircraft clerk typist was slugged in Claremont. She was walking home after getting off the bus. A man knocked her down from behind and took one of her shoes, but not her purse. So then by September of 1957, more than a dozen similar instances had been reported. Wow. Twice he attacked more than one woman on the same night. Newspaper columnists began working on items about the bandit. One, under the heading Shoe Bandit Talk, relayed the story of a man who chided his wife, maybe in jest, maybe not, for living recklessly by wearing a new pair of shoes after dark on their 10th wedding Yeah, I wouldn't do that, lady. Put them new shoes somewhere else. Another column item spoke to the small-town nature of the community. It noted that the most recent victim was the mother of one of the first. Oh, really? The Shoe Bandit had better start a reference file, the columnist wrote. Even... Jack Murphy, the popular and influential sports columnist who would later have the Mission Valley Sports Stadium named after him. Oh, that guy? Which is now called Qualcomm Stadium. Qualcomm? Qualcomm? Qualcomm. Got into the act. In a September 1957 column, he wrote, quote, Life is very perplexing. Gals in San Diego wonder if they should go barefooted until the shoe bandit's caught. Yeah, those ladies should. Eric Callan, who lived in Bay Park and was in elementary school at the time, remembers watching cartoons on TV in the afternoon and hearing the newscasters say, the left shoe bandit strikes again. As a seven-year-old, he found the whole thing bewildering. Why would somebody want to steal some stinky shoe? Do you think he's like a weirdo with a foot fetish? Oh, yeah. He said people talking about it on television really seemed upset and terrified. And when he asked the grown-ups in his own life what was going on, they would change the subject. So on at least two occasions, police announced they had brought in for questioning someone they thought was the bandit. The newspapers ran photos of the suspects, along with their home addresses, really? which was common Anybody practice Anybody who's at the a time. suspect just put their address out. Along with it, they also it. ran at names of addresses of the bandit's victims. Yeesh. The addresses. That's crazy. Both times, the men were cleared after being viewed in lineups by some of the victims. Police were also flummoxed in their use of undercover officers. Every time they followed a woman off a bus or ferry, she made it home safely. Well, that would that would flummox them. One time, an officer had to choose between following two women getting off a bus at the same time, and the one he followed arrived without incident, and the other one was attacked. Talk about being flummoxed. That would flummox the hell out of you. So now we get to May 8th, 1958. Okay. A woman in Coronado was watching TV with a boyfriend, a Navy officer. On a Thursday, while Nixon's getting screamed at. When they noticed a slightly open door opening wider. Oh. They looked over the back of the couch and saw a man crawling along the floor. Wouldn't that be so creepy? <laughs> you like you look and you over know, and the there's 50s. like a guy crawling yeah. on the floor. Well, it's 1958, so you know he's got a fedora and yeah. a trench coat on. The <laughs> and man he, fled. And he's mumbling, yeah, see, yeah, I'm a guy in now the 50s. Now you're getting, that's like 30s. 
Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh, Edward he's just G. got Robinson greasy hair. Okay, that's right. He's got grease in his hair then. So the man fled, <laughs> and the Navy officer chased him. They got into a fight in the street. Neighbors oh overheard it and called police. Oh, were the neighbors getting flummoxed? Officers found a man hiding behind a lawn chair in a backyard and arrested him. His name? Wayne Snow McFarland. Wayne Snow McFarland, the left shoe bandit, He y'all. was 23, a Navy pilot born and raised in Houston and stationed in, at North Island. That, now that sounds like a stand-up guy. Police asked him if he was a shoe bandit. He said no. Oh. They got a warrant to search his Coronado apartment and found several women's shoes in a trunk. Oh. Confronted with the shoes, he confessed and led officers to several nearby caches of female footwear. I am the shoe bandit. The spree had lasted 20 months. McFarlane admitted to 22 assaults and 15 burglaries, although police believe there probably were more victims. All I know is I had to get those shoes, he told one reporter. McFarland's father, Morris, a furniture Shiz. store owner, hired a Shiz. swaggering Texas defense lawyer named Percy Foreman, a former prosecutor who was six foot four, weighed two fifty pounds, and carried around a newspaper clipping that described him as a millionaire who practices law as a hobby. Yep, you gotta get a big guy like that. When a reporter asked him about the report that he was the greatest lawyer since Clarence Darrow, he replied, <laughs> I would say I wouldn't say it, son, but when accused of it, I don't deny it. Right <laughs> I away. Like that guy. Foreman said the legal issue wasn't McFarland's guilt, but his mental state. The Ah. human mind is a wonderful mechanism, the attorney said, but it takes only a little thing to set it off balance. He had his client plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Insanity. Reason of flummoxed insanity. So at at his preliminary hearing, eight women identified him as the bandit. People talked about his eyes staring and full of violence. Yes. Yeah. In the words of one witness, she said his eyes were staring and full of violence. He was bound over for trial, then sent to Patton State Hospital near San Bernardino for a mental evaluation. A doctor there diagnosed McFarland as a sexual psychopath with a shoe fetish, possibly dating back as far as elementary school when he stole a pair of shoes from a teacher. The doctor said McFarland was sane during his spree that he knew the difference between right and wrong. Returned to San Diego, McFarland pleaded guilty to one count of robbery and one count of burglary. Each count carried a sentence of five years to life. Instead of prison, though, he was sent to a Tuscadero State Hospital for treatment. Ooh, is that where the doctor diagnosed him as uh, no, with a dome full of bad brains? Pretty much. So then in January 1959, a plumber making repairs beneath the floor of officers' quarters at North Island found two bags containing 133 women's shoes. Police said McFarland had lived there. Also huh. inside the bag were women's undergarments, clothing, and a 1955 novel called Beyond Desire by Pierre Lamure. Huh. A year later, the doctors at Atascadero said they had successfully treated McFarland and he was no longer a threat to the public. Foreman, his lawyer, asked that McFarland be put on probation so he could find a job and make restitution to his victims. District Attorney Don Keller objected. This man came to San Diego and gave unrestrained vent to violence and terror, for which I would challenge anyone to find a parallel in San Diego or California, he said. The only parallel I can think of is Jack the Ripper. It's a little bit of hyperbole, I'd say. That's a little. (laughs) Yeah. Judge Clarence Harden sided with the prosecutor. Probation, he said, would be shocking to the community. He sent McFarland to prison for 10 years to life. Wow. And that was that. The news reporters moved on to other stories. McFarland eventually was released and moved back to Texas and died in 1999. Oh, without taking any more shoes? No, not that we know of. Memories of his spree linger. He really did send a shockwave of fear through the community, said Joe Dittler, a Coronado historian. Bill Guise still lives in Coronado home where he was sleeping that night when his mom interrupted the shoe bandit with a scream. I'll tell you this, he said. We lock all the doors now. Well, they probably shouldn't because, like, 
probability is, you know, you've had your scare. It's not going to be somebody else. Right. And my main source was the San Diego Union Tribune. The San Diego Union Tribune. Thanks for the good reporting. That's right. Well, let's finish up May, shall we? Let's do it. So we can jump into June next episode. Let's do this. Well, May 9th, Vertigo. Vertigo, a psychological thriller. That's right. Produced and directed by? Uh, Alfred Hitchcock. And starring? Uh, Kim Novak. Yep. And oh, Jim, James Jimmy Stewart. Stewart. Yeah. Premiered in San Francisco, where its filming had taken place. In 1989, Vertigo would be one of the first 25 films to be selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Kim is not a real 50s name, is it? Like, that's much more of a 70s, 80s name. Yeah, it's an 80s name. 80s name. Uh, Monday, May 12th, 1958, a former agreement establishing the North American Air Defense Command, NORAD, Mm-hmm. was signed between the U.S. and Canada. Uh, oh. At, and we've heard a lot about this recently. I, don't know I was going to say, it sounds familiar. Because it's, it's they're the ones shooting down the balloons. Uh-huh. You know, because it's all these balloons hovering between the U.S. and Canada. I didn't know NORAD existed, but they're the people who patrol oh. the sky. And this is kind of when the agreement to put that together happened. Oh. May 12, 1958. And then May 13, 1958 was a Tuesday. And a hostile crowd in Caracas, the capital of Venezuela, carried out a violent attack meant to injure the vice president of the U.S., Richard Nixon, along with Venezuela's former minister, Oscar Garcia Vedutini. Because of violence at an earlier visit to Peru, Nixon and his wife traveled in a closed-top car rather than a convertible where the motorcade was slowed down by heavy traffic. When Caracas police stood by, the crowd cracked the bulletproof glass windows of the car with rocks and with their fists and tried to overturn the car. Twelve U.S. Secret Service agents were traveling with Nixon and drew weapons, preparing to fire into the crowd. And Nixon ordered the agent in charge, Jack Sherwood, to hold fire unless Nixon gave the order to shoot. Oh. Nixon had earlier received intelligence briefings that indicated that he might be the target of an assassination attempt in Caracas. Oh, man. And that's the same day that Ben Carlin from Canada mm-hmm. became the first person to drive around the world, what? arriving back at Halifax, Nova Scotia. How do you drive around the world? Almost eight years after his departure. It took him eight years after his departure in an amphibious Jeep called Half Safe. He left on July 19th, 1950. He just got there back 1958. So it's a Jeep that converts into a boat. Oh, my gosh. And he drives off the coast, and then it turns into a boat. And so I, if you look this up, look up this guy, Ben Carlin of Canada. He had his wife with him. And then I think by the time they got to like Australia, she like gave up and was like, like I'm you. going back home. Yeah. Like, this is ridiculous. Uh, I can't do this anymore. But they, I mean, the ocean, like going just across the ocean for one, mm-hmm. uh, they had tried it a bunch of other times and they had to like get, a, they had to increase the fuel tank on this hybrid so. vehicle to like really get by. They were hallucinating different times from oh just like God. why would you want to do months that? Months and months in the you know of seeing nothing just but water, nothing, and, and even the drive. Like they drove through the desert. They oh went through God, um, like Morocco, and then they went through like it was probably dangerous. Afghanistan too. and everything like Russia, like I, t- I mean, they just went everywhere. Like if, if you look it up online, even on Wikipedia, you can kind of see mm-hmm. they say from you know country to country that they went to, but they. They stopped in 
tiny islands, the Azores in the middle of the ocean, Atlantic mm-hmm. Ocean. Um, but as they went, different countries were welcoming them, like, you know, and wanted to help them at this point because they were just like, they're doing Oops. something amazing. Sorry. So, anywho, uh, May 14th, 1958. I hope all these sounds outside aren't, sounds like they're destroying the I know, right? neighborhood. I don't know what they're digging. But, um, May 14th, 1958 was a Wednesday, uh, and Nixon and his wife, Pat, cut short their tour of South America after being being summoned home by U.S. President Eisenhower. Uh, and the purchase of a new Air Force One approved by President Eisenhower, and for the first time, a jet airplane would be used to transport the U.S. President that same day. Oh. And they came back. I think that some of this had to do with them purchasing a new one. And then May 16th, 1958, in a rare example of a death caused by a caged animal at a zoo, Mm -hmm. a child visiting the Washington Zoo with her grandfather was killed when she wandered through an opening in an outer barrier and got close to a lion's cage. The two-and-a-half-year-old girl was pulled into the cage by a lion, and despite efforts by the grandfather to pull her back out, the lion was stronger. Oh, no. Yep. Wow. And that same day, an experiment by a minor league baseball team of placing a live microphone at home plate was started by the Keokuk Cardinals of Keokuk, Iowa, a member of the Midwest League. Broadcasting over the public address system at Joyce Park and controlled from the press box, the sounds of conversation could be heard by the spectators. The first use was in, a, in the first game of a doubleheader, with Keokuk winning one to nothing over the visiting Waterloo Hawks. Mm. The talking home plate was soon discontinued after team management found that it could also broadcast profanity yeah. and other foul language over the PA system. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then May 20th, all 11 people aboard Capital Airlines Flight 300 were killed when the Vickers Viscount 745D was struck by a Maryland National Guard T-33 training jet. I think it's Viscount. I know there's an S in it. Oh, Viscount. I think it's pronounced Viscount. Viscount. Yeah, I think you've corrected me on that before. I'm a dumbass. What can I say? No, you anyway, just learned it from reading it. That doesn't mean you're dumb. Wreckage of the airliner fell onto a farm near Brunswick, Maryland. The plane, which had room for 48 passengers, was carrying only seven. was approaching Baltimore at the end of a flight from Pittsburgh, where 27 of the people on board had departed after arriving from Chicago. Luckily, the flight instructor was able to eject before the crash and parachute to safety. Yeah, it seemed like they had a lot of these military jets. You know, there's more and more flights, I think, and mm-hmm. they don't have good control yet. And then May 22nd, Dwight D. Eisenhower became the first U.S. president to appear on color television. Oh. Appearing on the Washington, D.C. television station at the dedication ceremonies for the new NBC's affiliate. Uh, and that was the first time he's broadcast in color. That is sweet. Yep. And did you know that on May 23rd, 1958, two comedians were born on the same day? American comedian Drew Carey in Cleveland, Ohio, and Lee De- Leah Delaria in Bellevue, Illinois. You know who she is? No. She's known for being the first openly lesbian comic on television. Oh, sweet. And she was in Orange of the New Black. Big Boo. Oh, yeah. Big Boo, baby. She's funny. She was funny. She's great. And on May 28th, 1958, the U.S. House of Representatives voted for the second time in eight years to admit Alaska as the 49th state of U.S., with a measure passing 208 to 166. 
Man. And then May 29th, 1958, Peter Anthony Manuel, an American-born resident of Scotland, was found guilty of seven counts of murder by a jury in Glasgow and sentenced to death by hanging. Oh. He was dubbed the Beast of Birkinshaw. Oh, Did we talk man. about him? I don't think. I wonder why. I wonder when. Well, he was, if he was killed then, I guess it would be before the 50s. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe it was way, way I before. mean, there's, it, there's we so many covered murders. every murder. Yeah. I can't believe we haven't because we've done a lot of these episodes. Yeah, that's true. And then that brings us to May 31st, 1958, which possibly this could be the greatest happening oh. we've ever talked about on really? our any episode. The right. first Pizza Hut restaurant was opened. Oh, my God. <laughs> As brothers Dan and Frank Carney began operating at a location in Wichita, Kansas, 503 South Bluff Street. Within a year, they had six restaurants and more. I wonder if their first one had that red roof on it. Uh, maybe. More than 60 years later, almost 19,000 worldwide. I bet you could Google it and see the very first Pizza Hut and see mm-hmm. what it looked like. That was the same day that public buses in the Louisiana metropolis of New Orleans were fully integrated for the first time in the city's history. Wow. After an order from U.S. District Judge J. Skelly Wright eliminating the practice of requiring African Americans to sit at the back of the bus. Good. So there you go. Progress. Slow, Slow but steady. At a snail's pace. And stay tuned for the next episode where we talk about June. <laughs> In July, yeah, right? 1958. <laughs> yeah. We love you, we listeners. Love you. It's time to get out of here, Chuck We Barron. will make love to you at any time, listeners. If you want us to make love to you, just give a holler. All right. We're open. We have an open marriage. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. Stop looking at me. Bat Sherman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time. Byler Music.